We'll be reading this morning from 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 14. 1 John 5, 14. And this is the confidence which we have before Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from Him. If anyone sees his brother committing sin not leading to death, he shall ask God, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding in order that we might know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. I'll pray. Lord Jesus, um, we're grateful again for all that you are to us. And you are Savior and more. You are our teacher, our guide, our good shepherd. And we, Lord, look to you to instruct our hearts, our souls, our minds before you, that we would yield to what you are revealing of yourself and your will and allow you to perform these things in us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, there actually is another um, announcement for the non-announcements in our bulletin, and um, that is, um, for the last two or three weeks, I've been meaning to um, remind everyone who has a baby that we will have a baby dedication um, later this month. I said last year we had a baby dedication that we were going to make it our tradition to do it on Sanctity of Life Sunday every year, so that way we could remember it. And the Sanctity of Life Sunday this year is next Sunday. But we're not going to do it next Sunday because I forgot. And, um, and I'm not going to be here next Sunday. Connor's going to be preaching for me. Um, I'll be up in Quebec where it's probably minus 100 or something. Um, be turning into a popsicle up there. And so we're going to do it on January 26th. And so... If, if there are any babies that have been born um, since last year and you would like to be part of that dedication service um, and you want to talk to me or one of the elders about it, please do. I'd like to know ahead of time um, who wants to do that. And so send me a text or an email or talk to me after church or, like I said, any of the other elders, and they'll get back to me on that. So that'll be January 26th as part of our service. So we're wrapping up 1 John now, and um, again, every section of John just really, it, it's powerful, it stands on its own, um, and there are so many different sections here, so many different things that John says, it's kind of hard to get a flow of the book. But if you recall, the, the whole theme of this book has been John wants believers to walk in fellowship with God and in fellowship with one another. So one of the first statements that he makes in the first chapter of, of, of this book is, God is light. And if we're going to walk in fellowship with God, we have to walk in the light as God himself is in the light, and we will have fellowship with God and with one another. 
And then he's going to say later in the book, God is love. Well, he doesn't emphasize the love of God until he first talks about God being light. Because you have to walk with God who is light. You have to walk in the truth, in other words, and not just in love. And, And the truth informs our love. And it seems in this last chapter, he's been emphasizing that God is life. And so he's been saying in the previous verse, verses, verse 11, and this is the witness that God has given us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. God is light. God is love. God is life. And we um, have that life when we have Jesus. And we can be absolutely sure of our salvation because if we have Christ, we have eternal life. And eternal life is not something that goes away. And then, because we have eternal life, because we have relationship with Jesus, we can have confidence when it comes to prayer. Because we are in a relationship with God. We forget this. I mean, so it's astounding to me. John Forrest and I were talking about this a little bit this week, where... It is so seldom that Christians and churches are talking about a personal relationship with Jesus. And so even in prayer, we can talk about methods of prayer, aspects of prayer, forms of prayer, and we don't talk about communication, friendship, fellowship with Jesus. Because prayer is about a living relationship with a living person. And so if I'm walking in fellowship with him, chapter 1, it only stands to reason that I'm going to be talking with the one that I'm in fellowship with, chapter 5, and he hears me when I talk with him. So it's about a relationship with Jesus. And if I am confident that that I have Christ, then I can be confident that that Christ whom I have hears me when I talk to him. So verse 14, and this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Absolute confidence. Sometimes it may seem that our prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling. That is never the case. God hears us when we pray. I've had people at times ask, does God hear the unbeliever when they pray? And the answer is yes. He is the all-knowing, all-present God, And there is no one who prays that God doesn't hear what they say. But in particular, God is is responsive to the prayers of his children. It was um, George Mueller who once said, he was, was very famous for his prayer life, and he said, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, but rather it is laying hold of God's willingness. He is not reluctant to hear us. He is willing to hear us. He wants to hear us. He loves to hear us. In John chapter 15, where the abiding life is first mentioned, and and as I've noted in the epistle of 1 John, John seems to be really expounding on that section of John 15. Jesus says regarding prayer. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. Now, there's no mention there of praying according to the will of God. So maybe that's why John is now mentioning it in his epistle. Because people can think wrongly that they are abiding when they aren't. And so then they pray and they wonder why their prayers are not being answered. 
Well, the one who is abiding in him, his words are abiding in them. And we ask according to his will. We ask in accordance to his word. His word and his will are the same. Now, the Old Testament people that are, that are famous to us, almost all of them, hardly without exception, the good ones, are famous in part because of their relationship with God that was expressed in prayer. And one of my favorites is Elijah. And Elijah is noted in James for his prayer. And, in, and is, we're told that when a man like Elijah, and we're like him, a righteous man, when he prays, God hears his prayers. And we look at Elijah and we go, man, that guy, he prayed that it wouldn't rain. And it didn't rain for three and a half years. And he prayed again that it would rain and the skies opened forth and poured forth. And so we should be able to stop the rain and pray for rain, right? That's the lesson there. No, it's not. I know some people would think that. And some people would try to say, well, if Elijah could pray for the rain to start and the rain to stop, then that is the authority that every Christian has. That is not the lesson from Elijah's life. Elijah prayed that there would be no rain because he was praying according to the will of God and the word of God. In Deuteronomy 28, it says, if my people turn away from me and, and worship other gods, it won't rain. But it was still raining. So Elijah goes, God, your word says, your word says it's not supposed to rain. So Elijah prayed in keeping with God's word. And God was honoring his word. And Elijah could have the confidence that when we pray according to his will, he hears us. And so he was reading scripture and says, this is what your word says. So God, I thank you that this is what you're willing to do. Three and a half years later, the people had turned back to God. And God's word says, if my people turn back to me, it shall rain. And so Elijah gets down on his knees and says, God, it's time to send rain. He prayed according to the word of God. And so he could pray with confidence. That's something that we miss. If we're abiding in Christ and his words are abiding in us, when we pray, we will pray according to his will. And when we pray according to his will, we can have absolute confidence that he hears us and he gives us our request. James also makes note, he says, you have not because you ask not. Now that's a mystery, isn't it? That's a, that's a problem if you're a strict predestinarian, okay? If, because you're going, why pray? I mean, if, you, if, you, if you're a strict predestinarian, then you have to ask the question, then why pray at all? There's no reason to. But obviously, there, is, there are things that God is wanting to do, willing to do, that he's not doing because people aren't asking. You have not because you ask not. Jesus says in Matthew, ask and you shall receive. Knock and the door shall be opened to you. And he, and he beckons us, come and ask, come and ask. It's not necessarily all been predestined, that we don't even need to pray. We are not fatalist. We are in a fellowship with God, a relationship with God. And God has made us co-workers 
co-laborers, partners with him, the scripture says. And there are things that God, he doesn't need us to pray. But there are things where God has said, it's not going to happen unless you participate. And you participate by praying. Come and ask. And James follows up and says, you have, you ask and do not receive because you ask for your own pleasures. And so we're not asking according to the will of God, but for our pleasures. And yes, God wants us to come and ask, but God is not just a puppet for us to pull the strings for. He is the sovereign God, and He wants us to come and ask according to His will, and He says, watch me work. It is not overcoming God's reluctance, but prayer is laying hold of God's willingness. But we must abide, we must have His Word dwelling in us, we must ask according to His will. And he hears us. And, do, and verse 15, if, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, and he does, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. Does that include all healing? Does God want everything to be healed? Paul would say no. He had a thorn in his own flesh, and he prayed three times for that to be removed. And Jesus said, I've heard you. Stop praying about it. Wow. Don't ever pray about it again. Stop praying about it. I am not going to remove that thorn in your flesh. In chapter 8 of Romans, Paul wrote, and he says, creation is groaning, and we are groaning waiting for our day of redemption, and even the Spirit of God groans with us. And the implication, I think, very clearly there is that we live in a fallen world, and the fallenness of this world doesn't go away because we become Christians. We've been redeemed, and we are being redeemed, and the world is waiting for its day of redemption. And until that time, we live in a fallen world. And we don't always know how to pray, but the Spirit intercedes for us. Romans 8 says. So if you, your heart, if your mind, your theology tells you that God wants everything healed, I will pray for you. Because you're set, setting yourself up for major, major disappointment in this life. And when your theology crashes, I pray that you don't. I heard a guy one time, I've made mention of him before, I was, Patsy and I went to a, to a pastor's conference, maybe 20, 30 pastors that were there, and, um, and they all believed, every one of them, that God wants everything healed. Well, this, you know, I felt like I was a little bit out of my element. Uh, that's not the kind of folks that I would normally be associating with. Great weekend, great folks, loved them, and had had a good weekend with them. But one of those pastors, and he was one of the keynote speakers for the weekend, he had lost his wife and his mother and his daughter, tragically. And I believe all three of them was various kinds of cancer. None of them were healed. The three most significant women in his life all died, despite his theology. And he said in the course of that weekend, when our theology 
crashes into God's reality, God's reality wins every time. And I'm thinking, why are you still part of this denomination whose theology doesn't reflect what you've come to know is true? I don't see anything in the New Testament that even begins to hint that God is going to heal every sickness in this lifetime. He does not take away the fallenness of the world yet. It is coming, but it's not yet. But we can pray for that, and we should pray for that. And many times we do see God do that, praise God. But many other times he doesn't, praise God. I have come to think one of the reasons that God does not heal all things is so that we can relate to this fallen world. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that the God of all comfort comforts us in all of our distresses so that we will be able to comfort others in their distress. And we live in a world where there are many people in distress. And how could we comfort them if we are not going through the same things that they're going through? So what is the will of God? Well, when it comes to healing, we don't know. And again, Romans 8 says, we don't know how to pray when it comes to the fallenness of this world. And sickness is because of the fallenness of the world. But I do know God wants every believer in the midst of the fallenness of the world to know his peace, to know contentment, to know joy, and to have Christ reflected in him and through him in this world. Jesus says, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. So it is God's will that believers, when they are going through trials, not lose heart. Take heart. Take courage. I've overcome the world. So I can pray in confidence when my brothers and sisters are going through trials that God strengthen their hearts, that God makes his, his abiding presence real to them, that he guards them with his comfort and his grace, and supplies his strength, hope, and joy to them. And God is always willing to hear that prayer. What about when a brother is sinning? And we pray, God, deliver him from his sin. Is that a prayer in God's will? Yes. Scripture says a few times, we'll look at a couple of these verses just quickly. Look at the end of James. It talks about the sinning brother going back to the just, just past Hebrews. Then there's James in James chapter 5. It says, verse 19, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So God wants us to pray for the brother who has strayed into sin and seek to be an agent for him to turn away from his sin and back to the Lord. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1, 
Paul writes, Brethren, if, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. And so when it comes to a brother or a sister sinning, and you know that they are sinning, the scripture says you can be involved in the redemptive process through prayer and through being, and through being actually involved in communicating and relating to them beseeching them, imploring them to turn from their sin. But the biggest part is prayer. So it is the will of God for us to pray for one another when we see that we're moving into sin, that we would turn from our sin, that there'd be a spirit of repentance and brokenness, contriteness over our sin, as David said in Psalm 51, and that we would turn from it. But John says this, verse 16, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin or sin not leading to death, he shall ask God, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. Well, I thought all sin led to death. Doesn't Romans say that? The wages of sin is death. Yes. But he must be here, and this is, Again, I, I've done a fair amount of reading this week on this passage, and I tell you, man, people are all over the place on this. And there are a lot of folks, solid evangelicals, who say this is not talking about a Christian who is sinning. This is talking about an unbeliever who is sinning, and this is talking about eternal death. Well, the problem with that is very obvious. If anyone sees his brother And he's been consistently making reference to brother as a Christian throughout this epistle. So now he's changing and making brother a person who's not saved doesn't fit the epistle. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, well, all sin leads to death. Yes, ultimately. But we have been saved from eternal death. That's what he's already said. He who has the Son has eternal life. And so we don't have to pray that a Christian will not experience eternal death. They can't experience eternal death. They've already passed out of death and into life, Scripture says. And so that's why there are those who would say this can't be a Christian. This has to be the unbeliever. But that doesn't work. And I think what we overlook, again, is is what Paul makes very clear in Romans that if you as a Christian are walking according to the flesh, then you must experience what is true of the flesh, and that is death. So Paul says in Romans 8, if you walk according to the flesh, you as a Christian must die. And he's not talking about eternal separation from God. He's saying you can't, you can't experience the life that is in you while you are living according to sin. Because the wages of sin is death. Now, I've, I've been, this has become such a, almost epiphany to me in the last couple of years that I'm talking about it a lot with our students at His Hill. We're going through Romans 6 right now with our second year students. And, and I'm telling you, it has just become so clear to me that what Paul is saying there in Romans is, if, you, if all you want in the Christian life is to experience the grace of God, well then sin! Because Where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. But Paul's point is you haven't been saved to just know grace. 
The grace of God, the end of chapter 5 of Romans, is meant to lead us to life. And you can't know life while living in sin. You're going to know what sin brings. Sin brings death. And so you're a Christian. You have eternal life. But you're not experiencing the life that you have because you're not living in fellowship with the one who is life. And so you're not experiencing life. You're experiencing death. Brethren, if you see your brother committing a sin which is unto death and not unto death, all sin is going to give us an experience of death. But some sin, John seems to be saying, will actually bring about your quick demise. You could die physically. Four times at least in 1 Corinthians, Paul makes reference to this. And I'm kind of glad. Because whenever we think of a bad church in the New Testament, what church do we think of? The Corinthian church, right? Those Corinthians, man, we hate to go to the first church of Corinth. Good night, that was a bad church. It was a rotten church in a lot of respects. And Paul says to them in chapter 3, right? Almost out of the gate. 16 chapter long book. And Paul says in chapter 3. Anyone who destroys the temple of God. God will destroy him. And by temple of God. He's not talking about our body. He's talking about the local church. It's very clear in the context. And how do you destroy the local church? By operating according to the flesh. Rather than according to the spirit. And when a church becomes just another carnal enterprise and the Spirit has nothing to do with that church. I read one writer, forget who it was now, somebody famous. And he, um, and he said, um, it'll probably come to me in a minute. He said, if, if today's church, if the Holy Spirit were, were removed, 90% of what is going on would continue on like nothing ever happened. But in the church of Acts, if the Holy Spirit were removed, maybe 10% would remain unchanged and 90% would stop because the Spirit of God was directing what was going on in the church in Acts. And when a church becomes just another secular, natural, humanistic enterprise, for all practical purposes, that church has been destroyed. And God says, the people that are responsible for that, watch out. He will destroy them. And then in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about a man who is in that church who is sleeping with his stepmother. And Paul says, what are you thinking tolerating this? This isn't grace. This isn't love. This is ungodliness. Get him out of your church. As for myself, Paul says, I have already handed him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. And what is destruction of your flesh but death? That his soul might be delivered. In chapter 10, Paul lists five different times where Israel in the wilderness tried God, sinned against God, grumbled against God. And all five times, people died. And then he says, here's the application. If you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. 
And following the context is death. Presumptuous sin. When Christians are complaining and acting like God owes us everything, and we give thanks for nothing, God says, take heed. Take heed. And then chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, the one we know best, he says, some of you are weak, and some of you are sick, and some of you have gone to sleep. You have fallen asleep. You have died. Because you take of the Lord's Supper in a manner unworthy of Him. The cross of Christ is not being demonstrated in how you live your lives. It wasn't just about the communion ordinance. It was about the community. And you're living in community in such a way that the cross of Jesus Christ is not being evidenced among you. And some of you have died because of it. So I think it's pretty clear in Scripture that people can, Christians can die. They cannot live out the full days that they should live out because of sin that they will not turn from. And John is saying, if somebody is committing that kind of sin, I don't say pray for him. But if he is committing a sin that does not lead to his premature death, pray for him. Pray for him. And God will deliver him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask God, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. Not eternal life. They already have eternal life. But they will begin to experience the life that they got the moment they received Christ which they are not experiencing and not knowing when they're living in their sin, walking according to the flesh. So he's not praying, oh God, just let them know your grace. Jesus didn't save us just to know grace. Jesus saved us by grace so that we might know his life. God, work in their life to turn them from their sin so that they might know your life. You've saved them to know life. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. I wish he had told us exactly which ones those were. I just went over four from, from 1 Corinthians. We also know in the book of Acts, there's Ananias and Sapphira who lied about how much Money, they were, um, the, the price of the land they, they got for the selling the land, and they lied about it. There was hypocrisy, lying against the Spirit, and God struck them dead. First people in the Bible to be slain in the Spirit. But there is no list, and probably a good thing, of the deadly sins, the sins that will shorten your life quickly. Catholic Church has them. Seven deadly sins of the Catholic Church are pride, greed, lust, envy, gluttony, wrath, and sloth. They didn't get that from the Bible. There's no list of deadly sins in the Bible. But we are told that there is a sin, and it means more than one, but there is a kind of sin that brings about premature death for the Christian. And you don't need to pray about that. 
Now, he's not saying don't pray about it. He's just saying you can't have the confidence that God is going to answer your prayer when you pray about a person who is committing that sin. But he's he's not saying don't even pray for that person. He's just saying you don't have the confidence that God is going to answer your prayer when you are praying for somebody who is committing a sin which is going to bring about their premature death. Now, we don't know exactly when that's happening, do we? If you think you do, keep it to yourself. We don't know. But the assumption seems to be that as we are abiding in Christ and fellowshipping with Him, the Spirit will direct us in how to pray. And there are times when the Spirit may just be saying, may not tell us, don't pray for that person because I'm going to kill him. I've never had the Spirit tell me that. But there may be times when we, when we just sense the Spirit of God is saying, you've prayed enough. Leave them in my hands. Just like the Spirit of God said to Paul, stop praying about it. Leave it in my hands. God did this with some of the Old Testament prophets at times. God said, don't pray for them. Don't pray for them. We can still pray that in God's discipline, they would know the love of God and the mercy of God. Pray that God's name would be exalted. If this person is coming under the discipline of God, God, your name be exalted. I pray that those who stand around and see this not turn against you and have their hearts hardened, but they would be instructed and turned to you. A pack of cigarettes comes with a warning label on it. Sin doesn't. So we don't know which ones will necessarily kill quickly. God has not spelled that out. In the Old Testament, there were a number of things where God said, this deserves the death penalty. But there are other times in the Old Testament where people died and, and they didn't do one of those things that clearly said, this is what will deserve the death penalty. They still died. In the New Testament, there's nothing about a death penalty for specific sins. And the reason being... Because the New Testament is about the church, and the church does not have the right to execute anyone. Israel's a nation, and like every nation, they have the right to exercise the death penalty. So God gave a list of sins that were worthy of death penalty. New Testament, there's nothing like that. But the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. And if there are things that were worthy of death in the Old Testament, we should know there are things that are worthy of death in the New Testament. And we should take it seriously. We should walk humbly in the fear of God. All unrighteousness is sin. He says in verse 17, and there is a sin not leading to death. So one of the things, and, and again, there's some review here, but for our students at His Hill, it's not so much review. Um, I, I think 
my experience has been the vast majority of Christendom believes that all sin is the same. This is the passage to go to that should just blow that thought out of the water. Clearly, according to this passage, verses 16 to 17, all sin is not the same. Some sin will bring about a, a, a premature death. Other sin does not. All unrighteousness is sin. But not all sin is going to shorten your life, bring about a premature death. Earlier in this epistle, chapter 3, verse 4, a similar statement is made. John wrote, and he says, Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. So I put those statements together. All sin is lawlessness. All unrighteousness is sin. And according to Paul, the wages of all sin is death. But none of those three statements say all sin is the same. All sin has things in common, but they are not identical. All sin is lawlessness. All sin is unrighteousness. All sin has the wages of death. But all sin is not the same. And we need to understand that. Some sin will bring about a premature death. Which ones those are, as I've said, we don't know. But we need to understand, Scripture is clear. All sin is not the same. Jesus said to Pilate, the one who delivered me up to you has the greater sin. So Jesus acknowledged there are greater and lesser sins, just as there are greater and lesser commandments. The greatest commandment? Well, there's a greater sin. And the greatest of all sin? Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Jesus spoke to his generation. I believe he was speaking only to his generation. That's my thought on it. Was saying that Sodom and Gomorrah will have it easier in the day of judgment than this generation will have it. Because Sodom and Gomorrah was not guilty of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And Jesus' generation was either guilty of it or they were coming right up near it. And that's why he stopped speaking plainly to them and began speaking in parables. Because their judgment was going to be severe in the day of judgment. So if all sin is the same, then why are there degrees of judgment? And there are. Sodom and Gomorrah are going to have it bad. The generation that saw Jesus on this earth is going to have it worse. There are degrees of judgment because there are degrees of sin. Just as there are degrees of reward in heaven, there are degrees of punishment in hell. Hitler will have it worse than some sweet little grandmother who never even heard the name Jesus. They both go to hell, but it will not be the same for both of them. It'll be hell. They'll both know they are in hell. But Hitler is going to be judged much more severely because he knew the truth. He'd heard the gospel, and he rejected it and sold his life to do evil. And that's the way it should be. All sin is not the same, and because we serve a just God, he will punish every person exactly as they deserve and not an ounce more than they deserve. He is just. He concludes this by saying there are three things that we do know. We know, verse 18, that no one who is born of God sins. 
Really? This is not the first time he said this. Back in chapter um, 3, verse 9, no one who is born of God, the New American Standard, many of the translations, but practices sin shouldn't be there. It's not in the Greek. No one who is born of God does sin because his seed abides in him. The end of the verse, he cannot sin because he is born of God. And every translation gets it right on the last half of the verse. They just get it wrong on the first half of the verse. He cannot sin. The new man that God creates when you place Christ is as righteous as God is righteous. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The true you that you are in Christ is absolutely blameless. And 1 Corinthians 1 says, and he will keep us blameless until the day of Christ Jesus. It doesn't say he makes us blameless, he keeps us blameless until the day of Christ Jesus. When you place your faith in Christ, the old man was crucified and a new creature was formed and that new man, that new creation is absolutely blameless, absolutely righteous in the sight of God. God cannot sin and neither can the new man. So Paul says in Romans 7, it's no longer me who does it, but it is sin which lives in me. Sin which dwells in me. And I do the very thing I do not wish to do. It is no longer I who do it, but it is sin which dwells in me, Paul says in Romans 7. This is not the true me. Yes, it's me. So when I sin, I can't say to Patsy, Patsy, I'm sorry. That was somebody else. I don't know who that guy is. (laughs) That wasn't me. I have to own up, and I have to say, I sinned, forgive me. But that wasn't my true self. Because my true self, who I am in Christ, cannot sin and does not sin. This is why we don't define ourselves by our sin. We don't deny the sin. If anyone says that he was without sin, he's a liar. Right? We don't deny our sin, but we don't define ourselves by our sin. That's the difference here. That's not who I am. We know that no one who is born of God sins. Your true self, your true nature, your true identity in Christ. But he who has been born of God keeps him. And the evil one does not touch him. And again, we go, come on. How can you make a statement like that, John? Look around you, John. Every one of your fellow apostles is being persecuted. Even you've been persecuted. And before long, they're all going to be martyred. John was the only one of the 11 that wasn't martyred. How can you say the evil one doesn't touch you? John's going to write the book of Revelation. We're talking about the evil one touching people. He is, there's a bloodbath on earth because the evil one is slaughtering those who name the name of Jesus. How can you say he doesn't touch them? The martyrs in heaven are going, how much longer, O oh Lord, when are you going to do something to stop this? But the true self, the true man, Satan can't get at him. Because he is sealed by the Spirit of God. He is the child of God. He is righteous and blameless before God. And Satan can destroy this body. Jesus said that. Don't, destroy the one, don't fear the one who can destroy the body, but fear the one who can destroy the soul and cast it into hell. And Satan cannot get at 
the true man. There's nothing he can do to take away the eternal life that you have. Nothing he can do to take away Jesus Christ. Cannot touch the real you. He, God may give him the power and authority to touch your body, but even that he can't do unless God permits it. The one thing he will never be able to do is touch the true essence of who you are. Verse 19, we know that we are of God. We know this. We are not of the world. The world lies in the power of the evil one. We are not in the power of the evil one. We are of God. If we weren't of God, then we would be in the power of the evil one. We are of God and we are not in the power of the evil one. Seems like it at times, but it's not the case. We are not in the power of the evil one. We are of God. And the devil has no authority over those who do not belong to him. We know this. Verse 20, we know that the Son of God has come. Amen. (laughs) And he has, out of the mouth of babes, and he has given us understanding in order that we may know him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. We know this. We are in Christ. Christ is in us. And we know that that this has taken place so that we might know Him. And Jesus Christ is the true God and eternal life. We know that we don't sin. The true essence of who we are, we can't. We know that we are of God, not of this world. And we know that the Son of God has come and that He indwells us and that we can know Him in truth for who He is. He is the true God and He is eternal life. Remember, the book started out. I want you to walk in the light with God who is light so that you might have fellowship with Him. And as we fellowship with Him, these things will become increasingly true to us. We will know these things to be true. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. See, any other Jesus, a Jesus who doesn't, who has not taken you out of the world, you are no longer of the world. A Jesus who has not destroyed the works of the devil, go back to chapter 3 again here in 1 John. He appeared, it says, In verse 5, and know that he appeared in order to take away the sins, take away sins, and in him there is no sin. This is the God we fellowship with. He came and he took away sins, and there is no sin in him. And then verse 8, the Son of God, the middle of the verse, appeared for this purpose that he might destroy the works of the devil. He appeared for this purpose. The devil's works have been destroyed. Sin's power has been broken. And I cannot claim to be walking in light and fellowship with God and continue to sin and act as though Satan has control and power when he does not. And if I think that somehow this Jesus has not defeated Satan, not defeated the world, not defeated the power of sin within me, then what Jesus is he? Is he God who has come in the flesh? 
He must be something less. And that makes him an idol. He may be something I want him to be, but he's less than what he is. What is an idol? An idol is something that I cannot live without. A couple years ago, one of our second-year students on his own initiatives and said, let's have a technology-free, I think it was Thursday. Thursdays are work days for our students, so it wasn't a big deal. They, you know, and classes in the morning, work day in the afternoon. How big a deal is it to go Thursday without their phones? Man, you'd think you'd ask them to cut off their arms. No! How could you come up with something like that? Wow. Wow. An idol is something that we cannot live without. An idol is what gives me the greatest joy. See, I heard that thing go off, and I still have three minutes according to the clock. Now I'm in a quandary. Very quickly, an idol is what I cannot live without. An idol is something that gives me the greatest joy. An idol is what causes me the most grief when it is lost. An idol is what lifts me or what depresses me when it's gone. An idol is what I live for. An idol is what makes life work. The key for blessing for me. I can know what an idol is by maybe defining what prosperity means to me. What blessing means to me. Is it material? Is it emotional? Is it relational? Or is it spiritual? Because if you have nothing else but spiritual blessing, can you be happy? Can you know life? Can you be fulfilled? Can you be content? When all the relationships have turned against you, materially you have nothing that you can look at, emotionally even it just seems that you're just you're quaking. Habakkuk talked about that. He says, my knees quake and my inner parts quake. But if prosperity and blessing is defined in relationship with God, then I'm not serving an idol. What gives me security? What gives me peace? What gives, my, what gives me protection? And you can know what an idol is. Ultimately, there's only one true God, Scripture says, and that is Jesus Christ. And He is God who has come in the flesh. He has destroyed the works of the devil. He has taken us out of the world and placed us in himself. And we can walk in this life and have confidence. Our prayers are being heard. We have life itself. I don't have to look to this world for life. I have life. I am in life and life is in me. And I can fellowship personally with the God who gave himself for me. Why would we turn to anything else? Little children, guard yourselves from idols. I'll close this in prayer. Lord Jesus, I once again thank you for all that you have done for us. But more importantly, all that you are. 
in all that you are to us. That you haven't just given yourself to us to save us, to forgive our sins, though you've done that. But you came that we might have life and have it abundantly. That while being in this world, that we can live separate from the world while walking in it, unstained even by it. Amazing. You are the Redeemer. And I pray that our trust would increasingly be in you. That we would walk with confidence, God. Not arrogance, but confidence. Not in fear, but in boldness. With our eyes on Jesus, fixed on him and the things above. And I thank you, God, that though many times we don't know how to pray when it comes to illness and sickness and these things, that we can pray according to your will and that you hear us and we have our request. I pray, God, that we would learn to pray according to your will for godliness, for Christ to be made known in and through us, for your peace and contentment and joy, and that the manifestation of the sweet aroma of Jesus would grow greater and greater in each of our lives, in large part because we are praying for one another these things. And I thank you, God, that you hear us. And I pray, God, that when it comes to sin, Lord, you know, and I believe you tell us personally, you may not tell another soul, but you tell us when we are in danger, when we are trifling with the holy God and his grace, and trampling underfoot the blood of Jesus. Oh, God, I pray that we would hear you and come back to you humbly in brokenness with the contrite heart that your word says that you never despise and that we be delivered. I pray, God, that our lives would not be cut short and that your name be dishonored by me or any of us, Lord. Be exalted, Lord Jesus, in each of us as your people. In Christ's name, amen.